millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to the Hossadathon the podcast that leaps through the library of films from one of the world's greatest animation directors, Mamoru Hosoda. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm doing time with these guys. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Mamoru Hosoda. Hello, Jake. Hello, Steph. It's been a while since we've done one of these, right? It certainly has. Well, and it's been a while since we've done something series-based with a a filmmaker or a studio, I suppose, because we spent a lot of this year on our interview series where, you know, we farm out the hard work to our guests to talk. But now we're we're bringing it back in-house and we're going back into what we know best, I suppose, and talking about some filmmakers that we... We want to explore and share that with our listeners, which is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, let's have a quick roll call of who we've done so far. So, of course, this is called Ghibli Attack. So we started with Studio Ghibli going through their entire library of films. And then when we were getting towards the end of that library, we've always been thinking about where to go next. And many listeners and guests had been suggesting names. We did Satoshi Kon, very small but perfectly formed library of films there we did cartoon saloon an up-and-coming rising star studio with another sort of unified creative vision behind them but then we we wondered where to go next and one name that popped up time and again mentioned by listeners and guests was uh, was this guy mamoru hosoda so this isn't i suppose totally true to form in how we set out our the gambit of the whole podcast of someone not seeing any of the films and someone seeing all of them um but i suppose we're kind of going back to the old ways in that michael and steph you've both seen all of these films and i'm in the odd situation where i've seen the most modern ones so if people are familiar with his filmography i've seen bell and mirai which i suppose if we were let's take another director uh if we were (laughs) Doing a Scorsese podcast, we're starting with The Irishman and Silence. <laughs> and if then... we were doing a George Lucas podcast, you would have seen Attack of the Clones and <laughs> Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, but you two, you have seen all of these films, yeah? Well, technically no, because I haven't seen Belle yet, so... Uh... 
actually, yeah, my intro should have been, I've seen some of them, not uh, I've seen all of them. So actually, Jake, you're ahead of me. Lying to the <laughs> listeners at this early stage. <laughs> well, as uh, if, if I could be the uh, the referee here, I would say that Steph has, at time of recording, seen, seen all of them because Bell hasn't been formally released yet. <laughs> it's coming out uh, internationally, at least in the UK, it's coming out in 2022 and as we like to do with these miniseries we like to almost introduce the filmmaker through through this podcast and end on a, a new release in some form so we're figuring out who this guy is looking through his films why is he talked about on the level of these filmmakers uh, that we've discussed before. He's, yeah, he's always spoken about in the same way as Scorsese and George Lucas, isn't he? <laughs> the anime filmmakers, the Japanese filmmakers and, uh, and animation studios we've discussed in the past, maybe not Scorsese or Lucas, they could only dream of making films of this calibre, I think, particularly George Lucas. <laughs> but Steph, what's your relationship with his films then? Um, if, if Jake has come, kind of, he's, a, he's a Johnny come lately, he's only seen the recent couple, what's your relationship with him? Well, I think he's super interesting because I think he's kind of the only like anime film director that I've kind of been introduced to through like the film festival circuit. So I think I'm pretty sure my first experience of watching a Hosoda movie was seeing Mirai at um, London Film Festival a few years ago. And then I kind of went back and and watched the rest of his films because I really liked it. But um, yeah, normally, I mean, I mean, obviously I'm not old enough to have kind of gone to see Spirited Away on its kind of festival release or anything like that. But um, this is such an interesting, yeah, filmmaker to, to be introduced to through that kind of big film world and not through kind of popping down to the Empire to go and see, you know, the latest My Hero Academia movie type thing that's smashed the box office everywhere. So yeah, this is quite quite an interesting, I guess, more kind of film worldy director to get into for me. Absolutely. And thank you for reminding me, Steph, I am old. <laughs> so for those of us who did see Spirited Away when it was in cinemas, in the UK at least, it, it was not on its festival run, it did come out in the UK a couple of years after that. But for me, I've got a really weird story about this guy, particularly this film, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. So we've spoken about him in the past on our House Moving Castle episode, So um, because he was brought into Studio Ghibli to potentially direct that feature. And when The Girl Who Leapt Through Time came out and was released on DVD in the UK, whether it was intentional or an accident on the production line, the DVD had a sticker on it that said, from the creators of Spirited Away. <laughs> which this was sort of, I guess the internet was still around, so you could, have, of course, check that stuff out, but social media and everything wasn't as uh, prevalent as it is now. So it was just really bizarre to walk into your local HMV or wherever you buy your DVDs and then see from the creator spirit away. And I've never heard of what of this film. Look at the back. This filmmaker has no credits <laughs> on IMDb <laughs> with Ghibli. <laughs> Maybe they've just got a really loose definition of creator and they've expanded it to just include the country of Japan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And I, I did, I, I'm sure we can post this um, on, on, our, on our Twitter account. I found somebody on eBay who was selling a shrink-wrapped version of, of the UK DVD, so it still had the sticker on. <laughs> <laughs> but then it's true, Steph. He was you know, quite reliably a filmmaker whose films would come to the London Film Festival and for a long time would be released by Manga Entertainment in the UK that be getting quite nice DVD and Blu-ray releases as they came along. So it was very easy to have a relationship with him as a filmmaker, as in he 
created feature films rather than having to dive into long-running TV series and spin-offs. And so for the the core ethos of Ghibliotech, which is getting our head around filmmakers, filmographies and the stories behind them and through the films, he's almost a perfect guy for that, particularly because after a couple of films, he goes independent, creates his own studio that pretty much only makes his films. So he has a degree of independence that only few filmmakers in Japan have currently to make their own films with their own vision. So seeing as we're going back to the old ways, the old format, the good old days of Ghibliotech, before we started bringing in interviewees and all of that stuff, we love a synopsis, we love a context, we love a review. It's the tried and tested recipe. Steph, what is the film that we're talking about today all about? After discovering that she can leap through time, high school student Makoto Kono does what any teenager would do. She retakes tests, fixes embarrassing situations, and sleeps in as late as she wants, never thinking that her time travelling could have a negative effect on the people around her. By the time she realises the damage she's done, she'll have to race against time to set things right. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, Michael, this is the girl who leapt through time, but this is not... Mamoru Hosoda's first film. So we've kind of broken the formula there. And I think you're about to explain why. Who is this guy and why are we talking about him? Yeah, so who is Mamoru Hosoda? So he was born in 1967. To put that in context, that's the same year as Goro Miyazaki. That's the similar age. So he's very much that generation of um, animators who would have grown up watching anime on TV, particularly anime made by Isao Takahata and Hayao Miyazaki. On our interview episode with Goro Miyazaki, he was talking about how he really wanted to watch some sort of crazy sci-fi space anime, but he would instead have to watch (laughs) Heidi Girl of the Alps instead. But like imagining those two things on at the same time is pretty incredible. But Hosoda points to Castle of Cagliostro, 
Miyazaki's Lupin the Third movie, his his feature debut, as the film that inspired him to get into animation. And he tells the story about once he'd graduated uh, from art school, he applied for a job at Ghibli and got a personal reply from Hayao Miyazaki rejecting him, saying, go elsewhere, hone your craft, work on that gem inside you, and come back uh, later on and maybe you can work for us then. So instead he started like slogging through TV animation in Japan, working for Toei Animation in the 1990s. Very recently on the interview tour for Bell, he talks about a point in the early 90s where he really thought that he had to throw in the towel and give up his dream to be an animator. And the film that inspired him to keep going on was Disney's Beauty and the Beast. He went and saw that film one afternoon in Tokyo and it inspired him to keep going, which is pretty wonderful and keep going he did he worked through the 90s on series like sailor moon and dragon ball z the sorts of you know meat and potatoes kind of anime that you know we get over here but he worked his way up to animation director episode director and then started directing standalone spin-off films for example in the digimon series he made a couple of films like Digimon Adventure, which were eventually bundled together, recut, reshaped and dubbed and released internationally as the Digimon movie, which I think we'll talk about maybe later on in the series, because I think once he goes a bit more independent and starts making these original-ish features, as opposed to not being linked to tie-ins to other series, he becomes a bit more of a confident filmmaker or at least working. That's where he becomes... Hosoda rather than working within a franchise. But it's the Digimon movie that catches the eye of Toshio Suzuki, the great producer, uh, the great enabler of Studio Ghibli, and he brings him in to direct Howl's Moving Castle. We talk about this on our Howl's Moving Castle episode, so we can go you can go back and listen to that one. He gets kicked off that project quite unceremoniously when Hayao Miyazaki comes back out of retirement and wants to make the film himself. Hosoda then goes back to Toei, makes more spin-off movies like for the One Piece series, but he then lands at Madhouse, which is the studio we've talked about before because it's, well, it's a legendary historic studio, probably making more sort of, you know, all sorts of um, anime, but we know them because they made all of Satoshi Kon's films, um, as well as Paranoia Agents. So that's where genre films and perhaps more serious adult or you know, complex films can be made. His first project at Madhouse as a director would be this film, The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, which is an adaptation of a novel by Yasutaka Satsui, who we talked about on our episode about Paprika, because uh, he wrote that novel as well, Satoshi Khan adapted that into the movie. But that novel came out in the 20th century, in the mid-20th century, and had been adapted many times before, including in the 1980s. Nobuhiku Obayashi made a, a version of the film in live action. Not many of his films have made it out to the UK, but his film House is a bit of a cult classic, that crazy horror film. But Hosoda's take would be quite different. It's more of a pseudo-sequel, taking themes and threads from the novel and bringing it into, at that point, the present day. Bits of crossover, but relatively uh, original. I'd like to shout out some of the crew members on this project, names that might come up again as we go through this mini-series. You have Satoko Okadera, who writes the screenplay. She works with Hosoda a few times from here. 
it's quite fascinating her career one of her first credits was on a film called moving which came out in the early 1990s often pops up on your letterbox as like the the great hidden gem of 90s japanese cinema and then all the way decades later to 2014 sakutaka okadera co-wrote the live action version of kiki's delivery service that came out i think we talked about that back on our kiki's delivery service episode very different to the ghibli take on that novel there's also art director nizo yamamoto who was also art director on princess mononoke cast in the sky gray the fireflies also worked as a background artist on perfect blue only yesterday spirited away so some of those there is a dna in the backgrounds and the art direction of this film that leads to ghibli there's also yoshiyuki sadamoto the character designer who would also do character designs for uh, a few more hosoda films but is quite famous for working on Attack on Titan, which is a massive anime franchise, and then one of the biggest anime franchises, Neon Genesis, Evangelion. Sadamoto works a lot with Hideaki Anno. So just a couple of names to shout out there. That, you know, if, if, you th- if you're thinking these characters look like the characters in Evangelion or these backgrounds look a bit familiar, there might be a reason for that. The Girl Let Through Time was released in July 2006, just a couple of weeks before Tales from Earthsea. It didn't have a massive rollout in terms of number of screens, but it was a word-of-mouth hit so strong that then it became something of a sleeper hit. But more importantly, I think, it was a hit with critics and award-giving bodies. It picks up the prize for animation of the year from the Japanese Academy and the Mainichi Award for Best Animation, beating in both those categories Tales from Earthsea. So he's just been kicked off a Ghibli project, goes and makes this film, and then beats... Ghibli finally adapting Ursula K. Le Guin. So that's the long game win and achievement for Hosta. It really marks him out as this new independent filmmaker to watch, something a bit different from probably what he would have made if he had acquiesced to, to, to Miyazaki's vision and made House Moving Castle. And of course, it then gets that international rollout. As I say, it's the film that you could find on your shelf in HMV in the mid, mid late 2000s. So it's familiar to even casual anime fans around the world. But that's sort of the context, the wayward context, setting up this guy, his films, and then the girl who leapt through time. Most importantly, it's so great to get back into this groove. I want to know what you, Jake and Steph, think of this film. So we've just had all that context Obviously, a lot of Ghibli crossover within that, although Hosoda has been con- been contending with being called the next Miyazaki or working within Miyazaki's shadow for his whole career. But Jake, what was your response to this film and how did any of that context sort of clarify in a bit for you? Well, it's funny that you mentioned him being the next Miyazaki and on his debut literally beating the next Miyazaki. <laughs> <laughs> what a couple of weeks for Japanese cinema. Two good films coming out in a matter of weeks. And uh, what a lovely time. But yeah, initial reactions to this, it made so much sense as soon as you mentioned about the teams coming over, particularly the background artists, because for many reasons, this film in relation to the Ghibli films made me most think of Whisper of the Heart, not because just because of the, the kind of teen romance mixed with a high fantasy sci-fi idea, but also the, the look of it because you've got that kind of magic in suburbia. There's kind of a, a soft glow to the edges of the city and the sky and the, the bits of field and river that you do see in it. There's particular, particular shots of 
characters leaning on bridges and there's a there's a kind of parallel that you see uh perhaps maybe when some people were in japan they maybe recreated these photos of people standing on bridges but like you see these lovely parallel lines reaching across the screen in a cityscape in the background and it doesn't feel like this kind of cold imposing industrial city there's a real warmth to it i think he's really encouraging that spirit of adventure uh, that we see in those Ghibli films, and that really comes through from those from the backgrounds in this. Because I don't particularly think the the actual character design is that great here, and the background art is what impressed me more. Steph, what did you think? That's interesting because I I really like the character design in this. Um, it's interesting to hear that um, Sadamoto was working on character design just because of um, in the kind of. A companion booklet to the the DVD that I have, the Blu-ray that I have. Um, Hosoda is talking about kind of how he wanted this kind of like cartoony look, but also it to kind of reflect like real life. So he explicitly says like, but we didn't want the character to have blue hair like Ray from Neon Genesis Evangelion. So it's yeah, this kind of I guess mixture of like very real life school like characters but then they have this really interesting kind of very simple outline and no shading and sometimes you'll see a character from far away and they'll have like no detail on their face they'll just be like a little dot dot line smiley face it's it's, it's horrible (laughs) but I think it really lends itself to the kind of I mean I guess we'll get into this a bit later but that kind of like slapsticky cartoony humor I think it really lends itself to it really well but it's very interesting that it's it's kind of fitted together with those like really kind of beautiful background designs and very detailed background designs but um yeah I guess it's like a good mishmash and a good kind of it's very different to any anime films we've watched so far where we do have that kind of yeah that mix of detail but then character design that allows for all this kind of movement and humor and yeah really leaning in heavily into that kind of that funny funny yeah, element I, I think like if they weren't if the character designs weren't as simple you couldn't get away with that mm. that simple humor like in the same mm. way that like you've got a like a, a charlie chaplin character or a buster keaton character like they they cut this silhouette they're very simple and that is what allows them to you can put them in wild situations and you can kind of always track who they are and what they are because they've got this shape and look that you instantly recognize mm. but when you when i first saw like these characters in the background that literally have no face uh it just made me think of in pompoko when it's a horror sequence and one of the big things is like how disgusting would it be if someone didn't have a face and it's a really scary moment and then that, that's what i'm seeing in the background and i'm meant to be watching this kind of like charming teen drama that's really interesting that you say that jake because i suppose coming from ghibli and satoshi Kon, two filmmakers who really cared about the detail of every frame um, and the consistency of character design. That's something that actually does get thrown out quite a lot in particularly manga and a, and a lot of anime series when those characters do go more figurative rather than naturalistic in their in their design based on the emotion of the scene or sometimes just the budget cutting constraints of you can't you know have full detail on every character in the background. Is that right, Steph? You watch a lot more TV anime than I do. Yeah, I think it's a lot more kind of it's a lot more kind of representative of that like TV anime and manga where you have yeah a lot more kind of like, well especially a manga when they're kind of drawing week to week and just have to like get this stuff out they do end up in these kind of more economic character designs um, 
I think it's I think it's still kind of yeah a kind of skill in itself to like convey expression with like three lines well Um, just on on that word economy that kind of brings us to the story which we haven't really got into and I did think about this with a time loop story where you are just constantly revisiting the same locations over and over again and the same framing over and over again it's a dream for an animator it's like you we only need to draw this once and we can just keep coming back to it and we can really get to, we can get to those 100 minutes with uh you know probably about only 70 minutes worth of drawing because we just need to do just do this scene once i'm sure they put their feet up a lot <laughs> oh yeah this yeah this easy famously easy job being an animator isn't it jake i'm quite interested about what you thought about that kind of sci-fi genre because i mean yeah when I guess going back to like when the film opens, you get this very kind of sci-fi opening credits kind of red line. It's very mysterious. But then we kind of instantly dropped into this just kind of very normal slice of life type world. Was that kind of what you were expecting or? No, I suppose with um, with Mirai and with Belle, which we will get to, um, the kind of high concept sci-fi stuff is a lot of what lingers in the mind. And so... That is what I was bringing to this, particularly with the title of the film, thinking, right, we're going to get, we are literally going to leap right into this. Um, but all of that slice of life stuff, that's that's the stuff I really love. Um, that's why I said that I love about all the Ghibli films throughout. And there's some stuff that's um, very familiar and like that school setting and that, that kind of heightens teen emotions where people uh, kind of almost didactically express their feelings in quite an extreme way to everyone all the time. <laughs> But also some some nice changes too. I, I really got a kick out of seeing bad cooking. Uh, <laughs> we talk about how pristine and perfect Ghibli's food is and just seeing someone being a bit rubbish here is really lovely. And just seeing the, these little details of teen life and the anxieties of it and the, the objects that become so important um, when you're at a certain point in age, uh, like the importance of your flip phone or how between siblings the the simple idea of a a pudding cup in the fridge can essentially like create an entire melodrama around it which is such a true sibling rivalry and so these little details aside from the the high concept were really lovely i think the film tries to over explain itself once it gets into the inner workings of the the time device and how that ties to the main character's relationships. We don't need to over-explain it. Um, if anyone's been lucky enough to see the new Celine Sciamma film, Petite Maman, or I recommend that people do, that's a great film for these young young relationships that has this sci-fi fantasy time drama, and it's never explained how it all works. But the relationships are so strong that you just go with it. And I, I think maybe this film could have benefited from like, re- reeling back the explanations. But that being said, the time stuff in it is brilliant. Like this idea of like just tumbling through time is so lovely. <laughs> like you mentioned the slapstick comedy aspect of it. Like there's no there's no TARDIS, there's no DeLorean, there's no phone box. You're just like running into a table. <laughs> <laughs> and it is consistently funny throughout the whole thing. Something that's really funny about that in particular, this very slapstick, you're tumbling through time as you as you said, is that they've been re-releasing Hosoda's films in Japan in 4DX, which is that um, slightly novelty-based film experience where the seat rumbles or can actually like arch back and throw you forward. And I'd love to know whether the 4DX element for this film 
is that whenever she you know jumps leaps and then you know falls on top of a rubbish bin or something that's where your seat rumbles that'd be quite fun actually (laughs) but that all feeds into something actually about the character design and depiction as well is that there's a messiness in this film which um i think we you do find across other slice of life coming of age films you know jake as we sort of go out into the great world of anime i'm sure you'll just see this more but it does make miyazaki's teenagers seem relatively not i don't want to say polite but that they're they're a bit idealized in some ways they're not swearing and talking about sexuality or the way that you know these these teenagers are drawn very differently maybe to what we see in the likes of from up on poppy hill or oh yeah they're they're not ganging together to clean up their clubhouse at any point are they (laughs) well i know steph one of your favorite things that uh she does with time travel is she just goes to the karaoke bar for a Uh, massive sesh (laughs) yeah i feel like what is so fun about this film is like for most of it, the stakes are just so low. Like, and I think we all like to think that, yeah, if we had the power to time travel at the age of like 16, we would like change the world. But I think we would probably all use it to sing 10 hours of karaoke. Like, it's just so... And I think there's um there's a line from her aunt, Auntie Witch, where she says kind of like, you know, thank God you're not using your powers for anything big or you know thank god you're just like being stupid with your powers and it's like it's just such a good depiction of i think a typical teenager um she's a bit kind of she's a bit silly she's not fully got her life together and um yeah the fact that she can kind of like turn back time and it's just using it to to just relive these kind of silly little school moments that she's obsessing about because that is like the biggest dramatic event in her life to date like the the fact that she tripped over at school or yeah enjoyed karaoke so much she wants to do it again type thing well i think just philosophically it's such a smart way of depicting that whole teenage experience like that's that's what the time travel device is doing it's like when you are a teenager you obsess over these things and you replay them over and over in your head and you kind of get lost in them and forget the bigger picture of it and like i don't fully appreciate this detail or that detail and I think the the film, uh, if you were viewing it at this age, would it is asking you to kind of to to reassure you and say like you don't need to you don't need to play this over and over again. Right, it's fine. You don't you don't need to get obsessed over this boy or that pudding cup. <laughs> and, I would obsess over the pudding cup. Yeah, it looked great. And, well, and you get like by the end of the film when you get these lovely cutaway shots to leaves and trees and fields and things, and like, that's a very Miyazaki thing. Is just trying to kind of asking people to be to be present in their current moment uh, and avoid their distractions which is really lovely I think it's such a good depiction of of kind of school days as well because I think sometimes you do just basically live the same day over and over like you wake up you go to school probably something embarrassing happens to you you go home and like that is basically your life for like five years before you're kind of like pushed out into the real world and then you you don't really have that safety net of you know every single day will be the same with the same people all the time um there are definitely some moments in this where she realizes that she can't use the time travel to kind of to put things back in the box and and reverse her mistakes and that kind of is a good symbol of her 
having to grow up maybe before she's ready to and not feeling ready to kind of you know accept like more adult emotions like if she has romantic feelings for her friend or not and kind of going over a cliff into adulthood a little bit and leaving that kind of safety net of of being a teenager it's such an interesting way as well because it does incorporate a lot of the bigger sci-fi themes and constructs of time travel movies like butterfly effects and the 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 unbending you know path of destiny but I love how in this film, the unbending path of destiny is this boy will always try <laughs> and go back on topic of how he secretly is in love with you. <laughs> that, that sequence where she's really trying to change the subject is, uh, is pretty amazing. But what did, what did you two, I've, I've said that I don't, I don't particularly like like that third act where it, it shifts into the rules and regs of it all and the, the thing that appears on your arm and tells you how many time loops you've got left, which definitely feels like it was written in <laughs> when they realised they had to bring things together for a dramatic finale uh what do you make of all of that stuff i do think it's strongest when it's not yeah thinking too hard about the time travel stuff it did kind of get me thinking about i know a film that we all love here uh shinkai is your name which i Mm. think does that kind of big time travel reveal really really well um obviously you know this is like a smaller film with smaller stakes and i think there's like so much to love in it that's not necessarily plot important definitely it's just a bit uneven and just makes it a bit frustrating when like if you could plant those seeds a little bit earlier then that would kind of make that payoff in the third act feel a bit more smooth i I think that's probably something like let's plant that seed and come back to it every episode because husser is very much a filmmaker who likes to have his personal level story and then there is this high concept would be a sci-fi concept or more fantasy setting and that's every single one of his films has that and i suppose let's just check in on how he's blending and meshing and creating that dialogue between them because this one as we just said the low stakes time travel time loop conceit is brilliant for exploring the humdrum everyday life of this girl and school life and the uncertainties around it but then let's you know less so when it has to then open up into some bigger sci-fi concepts perhaps but let's let's come back as he does that because he that's sort of his deal and it's a it is something that i think you can very clearly pinpoint as being different to something that Miyazaki would do. Miyazaki doesn't have the big... He'll he'll have fantasy settings and those flourishes across his films. And sometimes, of course, they do go... They do boil over, perhaps, with something like Ponyo, where surely it would just be better as like a boy and his fish friend going, going on an adventure. Why does that have to be the end of the world with a massive tsunami and a massive ocean mum but they're they're very different filmmakers and storytellers so that's something to pick up on i think but any like final highlights i want to highlight a particular you know i love boring suburban towns in anime having dragged you all to uh to the setting of whisper of the heart in western tokyo i love the central location of that main high street hill going down into the level train crossing it's just a sort of perfect setting and it's used so well. The details in the sounds, the fact that you get to know the location so well, the people who are milling about on their daily um, their daily chores, that is something that sticks in my mind every time I think about Girl Who Left Through Time. It's so elegantly put together. It's like a magic trick in the way that this uses its time loop sequences because a great trick and a great sequence like that will show you everything you need to know without telling you, without signposting it at all. And it's 
each time you revisit it, what you thought was just maybe a cutaway or just a, like an insert shot that didn't really mean anything suddenly has more value. And that's this kind of, you have this compound interest of emotion that just keeps building through the film at that sequence. It's so, so well done. Such a good moment. Also reminds me to check the brakes on my bike before I go out of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to point out the amount of food. I know, like Jake, you said, it's it's interesting to see bad cooking, but I think there's still a lot of good food in this. There's the yeah. the perfectly wobbly pudding that she gets to eat a few <laughs> times and really enjoys it. Um, I mean, that's what I'd use time travel for. If you've got a good pudding and you can go back and keep eating. <laughs> this, the one pudding that like always tastes the best. You can never get the same one. Yeah, definitely. There's like the, I think she, she uses her power to go back and eat teppanyaki when she doesn't want to eat like vegetables for dinner. <laughs> um, there's also just like a shot that I just think is so funny. She's like, it's her and her friend and they're sitting and it's kind of a close up two shot of them sitting, kind of pondering life, like having this really deep conversation. And then just kind of out of nowhere, out of frame, she just pulls this huge sandwich to tuck into. <laughs> it's like just bringing you back, I think, to to the reminder that like, oh, yeah, this this girl's pretty silly. She You think she's having a deep moment, but she's just hungry, I think. Uh, but yeah a lot of food to enjoy in this movie we should we haven't uh, mentioned the music but i think the piano soundtrack's really really lovely and is really surprising for the for the concept as well i think with this you could go a bit wavy and a bit doctor whoey and a bit big and brash and blockbustery particularly for when it goes into the the time warp and the cogs and all of that but you stick to this piano and like later on in um the back half of the film you get this really lovely um version of the bark goldberg variations which is just a an absolute stone cold banger forever but the version in here is is so so good very very enjoyable one that i've been listening to since i watched it oh that's what i want to hear jake i'm glad that this has kicked things off on on a, on a good good footing we don't we're, this is usually where we transition out to whatever we call the league table for our mini series but of course there's only one film so far but we can still talk a little bit further after the break So that was The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, the undisputed number one film in the Hoss order for all three of us so far. We'll have to see <laughs> next episode whether Summer Wars will challenge it for the top spot. Can't wait to discuss that with both of you, Jake and Steph. And until Summer Wars, the great battle of, you can keep up with us on Twitter. We are over there at Ghibliotech and we're on Instagram these days as well. We are at Ghibliotech. Dot pod and if you didn't know already we've written a book which is also called Ghibliotech which is in shops now and available to order now uh, if you're in the UK and I think in Europe you can find it in Urban Outfitters which is a bit mad um, and you can find it in lots of lovely comic shops and all around the world that keep sending us lovely messages on Instagram and Twitter so it's, it's very nice to see it popping up across the planet um, but if you want to follow us individually you can do so. We're on Twitter too. Steph's over there at underscore Steph Watts. Michael's there at Michael J Leader. And Jake's on Twitter at Jake H Cunningham. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. Our music is by Anthony Ng and James Payne is our editor.
Hi everyone, thank you for sticking through the credits. Now, if you've read the original book or seen the Obayashi film, you might recognise Auntie Witch in Hosoda's Girl Who Leapt Through Time as the original character who can leap through time. Um, Auntie Witch seems to know a lot about Makoto's adventures and she even lets us into a little bit of her own past in a little bit of the film. So maybe go check out the original book if you're, if you're very into Auntie Witch's adventures. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.